Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk, Male Idols, Indolence and Passivity, from our audio collection titled Spring Cleaning 2, Cleansing Idols from Christian Homes. All right, this, uh, this talk is on... Um, uh, a common male idol, uh, which is the problem of indolence and passivity, laziness, sloth. But uh, in, in addressing a talk like this, it would be easy to just go straight to the presenting problem, if you will, and assemble a bunch of proverbs that, that would kick you in the lazy butt, you know, <laughs> and just say, uh, okay, uh, consider the ant. Uh, you know, work harder, get up earlier, you know, all of that. But I don't, I don't want to attack the problem of indolence and passivity at the, at the place where the problem presents, which is the husband or father on the couch when he ought not to be on the couch. What I want to do is, in line with the first talk, ask what uh, theological framework, what theological assumptions lie behind that indolence? What theological assumptions lie behind passivity? And what theological assumptions lie behind Christian industry? So if a, if a Christian man is working the way he ought to work uh, with the right cheerful demeanor, what is it theologically that's driving that? And of course, from the first talk, you, um, you should understand the answer should be right worship right worship of the true and living God is going to be driving that. But I want to talk a little bit more of the theological um, details as we go into that. So, um, I think we have to begin with a statement of our problem. Many glorious truths were recovered at the time of the Reformation, and one of them was the doctrine of vocation. One of them was the doctrine of vocation. Uh, The biblical doctrine of work for men is not shut up and work, it doesn't have a point. It's not that. Work, vocation, is teleological. It always is directed toward a particular end. It has a rationale, it has a reason, and you can't be motivated to work without that reason. And you can't have that reason without worship. You you need, if if you just think that you're in a... uh, um, you're just a mindless drudge, and you were put into this world to dig the hole and fill it up, and dig the hole and fill it up, and dig the hole and fill it up. If that's what your framework is, that's the kind of thing that an idol would make you do. And it's not surprising that you get discouraged and just say, what's the, what's the use? If you worship the true and living God of Scripture, and you understand what He has called men to do, and you understand how the whole thing goes together, um, throwing yourself into your work is not going to be a problem. All right? So, in order to get there, we have to recover the doctrine of vocation. Unfortunately, this is part of our Protestant heritage that we have shamefully neglected and that we've almost lost. I think we've almost entirely lost it. When, you've, when you see people who still have... Um, a facsimile or, or some sort of um, approximation of the old, what used to be called the Puritan work ethic or the Protestant work ethic, frequently that has more to do with family culture and personality types than it has to do with ecclesiastical culture. Right? Ecclesiastical culture, in the old days, the ecclesiastical culture produced the Protestant work ethic. Today, in most, many Protestant churches, you can be a hard charger and a hard worker um, in a biblical way, and it's not against the rules <laughs> that you won't get disciplined for it, but there's nothing, distinctively, there's nothing distinctive about the ecclesiastical culture and the worship of God that's generating this kind of thing. And what I'm talking about is a worship of God that generates this kind of thing. One of the principal indications that we've lost this doctrine is that we speak easily and readily of those people who are going into full-time Christian work as though there were anything else for a Christian to do. What do you mean, full-time Christian work? Oh, you mean ministry? 
Okay, going into ministry is an honorable thing to do. Going into full-time evangelism is an honorable thing to say. Going into full-time um, uh, ministry of the Word and Sacraments is an honorable thing to do. But going to full-time Christian work is a terrible thing to say. It's a terrible thing to think. And it shows that we have really lost um, the vision our Protestant forefathers had on this. The reestablishment of two layers of holiness, two layers of occupation in the church in Christendom is a terrible loss. There are the full-time Christian workers, those who are sold out to Jesus. Right? They're in full-time Christian work. And then there are people with jobs, which are a necessary evil because we need somebody to tithe. <laughs> right. and, and so you just do whatever, get a good job and, and go to church and, and kick in your share so that we can support enough people who really want to love Jesus and, and do their full-time Christian work. That is a, an abominable uh, way of thinking of Christian vocation. In Exodus 31, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, and in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to devise cunning works, to work in gold, and in silver, and in brass, and in cutting of stones, to set them, and in carving of timber, to work in all manner of workmanship. So, the word of the Lord comes to Moses in verse 1. A particular man was called by name out of the tribe of Judah. I want to I'll emphasize this later, but the word vocation come, comes from the Latin word woco, which means I call. So a vocation is literally a calling. Bezalel is called by name into a particular function, into a particular task, into a particular job. His name was Bezalel, verse 2. And the Lord filled him with the Spirit of God. Verse 3. This is the first instance of anyone being described as filled with the Spirit in the Bible. First time. First time anybody is filled with the Spirit in the Bible. And why? So he could do a good job in the shop. That's why. What were the indications of the Spirit's filling? What were the, what were the manifestations of the Spirit's work? They were wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and craftsmanship, verse 3, which gave him the ability to do cunning work. As a goldsmith, a silversmith, a worker in brass, verse 4, as a jeweler, or possibly a mason, so he's setting stones, and I'm not sure if it's setting small stones like, as a jeweler would or setting large, large stones as a mason would a woodworker, along with any other similar work. So when the Spirit descends to fill a man for the first time in the Bible, it is surprisingly not to come down upon a theologian reading a big fat scroll by a Puritan in six-point font. <laughs> he does do that later. Right? God equips that. I'm not, I'm not disparaging that, but he doesn't do that first. He does that later, but that's not what he does first. Now, the important thing here is that Bezalel was called. The Latin verb that means to call, as I just said, is vocare, from which we get our word vocation, calling. This is not to disparage the importance of a call to the mission field or to the ministry. Of course not. If someone's called to the mission field or if someone's called to the ministry, they ought to go. And if they're not, they ought not to go. To go into the ministry is disobedience if you're not called. Right? And it's not just the ministers and the quote-unquote full-time Christian workers who get a call and everybody else just goes to the jobs counselor at the high school and figures out what they, you know, whatever, you know, let's take a few tests and decide. No, the Protestant doctrine of vocation is that everyone is called. Everyone is called. All lawful occupations are occupations into which God calls his people. So all Christians are called, and all are called to labor self-consciously and faithfully in their calling, whether it is law, real estate, carpentry, medicine, bricklaying, shopkeeping, changing diapers, writing novels or songs, digging latrines or planting trees or writing software code, 
you name it, if it's a lawful occupation, God calls some of his people to that lawful occupation. And all of God is in all of it. All of God is in all of it. And God is as honored by a faithful writing of a line of code as he is honored by the faithful preaching of a line of a sermon that's faithful to the text, faithful to the Spirit. He is as honored by the one as by the other. Now, we have to fix it in our minds. Now, I, this, is what I want, uh, this is what I want to drive toward. If Christian men recover a sense of vocation, recover a sense of vocation in everything, this is going to motivate in, in a way that nothing else could. It's going to motivate to work and industry and cheerfulness in work. It's just going to be, oh, you know, I'm here for a reason. I'm not just a cipher. I'm not just, I'm not just here to fill a, a spot. I'm not just a cog in this machine and any other cog would do. No, God, the omnipotent God, the sovereign God of the Bible, has, the one who numbers all the hairs on our head, has numbered all the workers in his vineyard. Right? He's numbered all the laborers in the harvest. And he's called each of them to a particular task. Now, those people who are called to a particular task but don't believe that they have been and are grumbling away at it are grumbling away at it because they have all of the work and none of the privilege. They have all of the work and none of the privilege. The privilege is understanding what you're doing. The privilege is understanding the point. The privilege is the teleology of the thing. So we have to fix it in our minds that God is in everything and he works through everything. This means that Christ is hidden in the artisan and Christ is hidden in the customer. Right, this is the hidden Christ. Now, Christ is revealed in worship. Right? Christ is revealed in worship. We see him in worship. We become more like him as we, as we worship him. And when we become more like him, we are able to recognize his presence in the world when he presents himself to us in his hidden forms. We recognize him when he comes into the shop. We recognize him um, as we go about our labors. So Christ is hidden in the one behind the counter, and he is hidden in the one in front of the counter. He is hidden in the dentist, and hidden in the patient in the chair. I gave a book recommendation last, uh, in the last talk. Let me give you another one. Um, this is by Jean Edward Veith. Um, who's written a number of books you may be familiar with, Gene Edward Veith, and he wrote a book called God at Work. God at Work. And Gene uh, Veith is a Lutheran, and Lutherans, like Luther, are magnificent on this subject. This is, this is one of the things that the Lutherans, I think, have done, just done well with. So, let's break this apart. First, God provides for us through means. God doesn't plop things on us from the sky. We benefit from the work of the farmer, the fertilizer salesman, the trucker, the grocery store clerk, the dairyman, and when we bow our heads to thank God for the breakfast cereal, we are thanking him for his work in all of these people. Right? God, Christ is hidden in them. Now, who, but we don't have any idea of the fertilizer salesman who got up at five one morning to get the delivery. Out, you know, we don't we don't think of that. But we just think we're gonna. Um, one time when my son was a very small boy, he was driving to Pullman with uh, or back from Pullman with with Nancy, and he was a, just a little boy. He looked out and looked at the fields, and he said, uh, "Mom, do farmers grow their own food?" And and she said, well, yes, dear, is a, in a manner of speaking. And he said, well, don't they know how to cook? <laughs> Why do they grow their own food when you can just cook it? Well, we think that chicken shows up at Safeway shrink-wrapped. We think that, that it's just a poof, poof, poof. And we th when we thank God for the food, we're thanking him for zapping this. It's not manna, but it's, it shows up like manna. It's just there. 
and we don't know the whole process. Well, when you thank God for the breakfast cereal, you are thanking God for a vast section of the economy and for his presence in that part of the, the economy and his labor through these instruments in that part of the economy. And, moreover, flip it around, when someone in Des Moines is bowing their head over their breakfast cereal, they are thanking God for his work in you. They are thanking God for how he worked in you to provide that for them. And, of course, you can, uh, if you traced the, all the, you know, everything that could be connected to this bowl of breakfast cereal, you're, you're, probably, you're dealing with this an immense um, web, right? And God's in all of it. And these people that, God, that Christ is working in, he's working in them whether they acknowledge his presence in them or not, whether they're Christians or non-Christians. We receive from God through the work of others. God has made the world in such a way that we receive from others, and we are supposed to thank God for what we receive from others. It follows, then, that God is using these others to give to us. We acknowledge this when we pray for our daily bread, Matthew 6.11. We know that God is working in and through all things. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. And this includes countless daily kindnesses from others. Now, of course, there are all kinds of things going on in your body right now. You, your body is fighting off infections and you're... You're doing, God's doing many, you know, millions of things for you right, right now, just within your body. But then when you take it outside into your family and, and the things you recognize, the things that you recognize are probably, you know, a tenth of one percent of all the things that he's actually doing for you and which he's doing for you through um, these other people. So Christ gives to us through other people. Christ gives to us through other people. And Christ gives to other people through you. Okay, and this leads to the next point. Second, Christ receives from us as we work in each of our vocations. God gratefully receives from us through the work that we do for others. So when I thank God for the cereal, I'm thanking God for him using the instrument of this farmer who gave me the cereal. So I'm thanking God for his work in the, in the farmer. I'm, I'm receiving from God. And that farmer, if he's a pious man, will thank God, and he's thanking God for God's work in me to give to him. But there's another uh, way of thinking about this, and that is, it's not just that my neighbor receives from me, it's not just that I receive from my neighbor, because Christ is in my neighbor and, and he uses my neighbor to give to me, and it's not just that Christ works in me to give to my neighbor. Christ works in me so that I give to Christ in my neighbor. That's, this is clearly, again, the teaching of the Bible. Lord, God gratefully receives from us through the work we do for others. Lord, when did I ever give you hot french fries when you were famished? I don't remember that. Well, don't you, don't you remember? It was that time at the drive through window when you had been bitching all day. <laughs> Take those, Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, something, something's all messed up with that, right? So remember, at the, at the, at the judgment, you're, here you are, um, and you say, but when did we visit you in prison? When did we clothe you? I don't remember, you know, I don't remember that. Christ says, I am not, not only am I in the, your neighbor as a provider for you, I am in your neighbor as a recipient of your provision. All right, now, that pretty much covers every lawful vocation in the world. Everything. Everything. God keeps track of all of it. He keeps track. This is the flip side of vocation. Um, God keeps track of every cup of cold water, Matthew 10, 42. You wouldn't, would you think that God had better things to do to bring up at the Day of Judgment than cups of cold water? Well, no, apparently not, right? Every idle word, cups of cold water, everything is woven together. And he reckons everything we do for others as done to him. 
Everything we do for others is done for him. So when we sacrifice ourselves for our wives and our families, he reckons that as done for him. When we protect our children from harm, he reckons that as protection rendered to him. When we give a cup of cold water, that's a cup of cold water given to him. When we visit someone in jail who doesn't deserve to be visited, that's done unto him. Right? Christ is receiving from us. So Christ is not just the haughty Lord on high who bestows blessings. Christ is, is hidden in all the provision that comes to us, but Christ is also hidden in the recipients of everyone that we provide for. Are you a teacher? Every student that struggled over the lesson was Jesus Christ. Every, every person that you've been tempted to get short with, you know, every irritating customer, Every person had to have it explained five times. You explain it five times for Jesus. So this means that Christ is hidden in your vocation, and he is hidden in your neighbor. Christ is hidden in your vocation, in your calling, and he's hidden in your neighbor. And what you want to do is to, to walk intelligently by faith, where you can function in terms of this, you need to have it be a thing that's hidden and revealed. Right? If it's hidden absolutely, you're just going to go blind and good luck. <laughs> right? um, but what I said in the first talk is that you, you get to know God better and better. You get to know Christ better and better. You become more and more like him, which means that you're, you, you're onto his tricks. <laughs> you start to see his disguises. Right? Do you see what I mean? Because you're, you, you start to think the way he does. You become more and more like him. That's, that is a God thing to do. That's a Jesus thing to do, what just happened there. We were created, and now we're to discover him in our vocation and in our neighbor by faith. And the eye of faith is trained in worship. As we looked, look to God in faith, our, the, eye of the eye of faith is trained in worship. We were created for work, Genesis 2.15. It's worth noting, and in fact, we should jump up and down on it. Work predates the fall. Work was not a function of the fall. God created Adam. He gave him a garden to tend, and he gave him a world to fill. There would have been a, there would have been a lot of work involved in that. And, man, and, and so we have to understand that man was created for work. He... Uh, he arrives at his highest dignity when he is involved in work. When Bezalel was in the shop doing these things, he was not pulling away from his, his humanity. We're, this is, men were made to work. And of course, so were women in a different way, a supportive role to their husbands. But men were created in a unique way to vocational work that's geared to the world. Women are created for vocational work that's geared to the husband who's geared to the world. So she's geared to the world also, but not directly. Right? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, the man was not made for the woman, but the woman for the man. So she supports him, she encourages him, and she has that vocation, and she's interested in his vocation and has a stake in it. But he was built for work. He was built to do. So we're created for work. Work predates the fall, Genesis 2.15. And we are called to work diligently six days out of seven, which we see in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 9 through 11. It doesn't tell you just to rest for one day. It tells you to work for six. Uh, work, uh, and that means that uh, if you, you wouldn't buy a lotto ticket because that would be dumb. Um, Lotto tickets are a tax for people who are bad at math. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's go after that segment of the population. But let's say your cousin mailed you a lotto ticket so you didn't have to buy it. <laughs> and let's say you won, you know, you won the Powerball thing or whatever, $10 million. What should you do next Monday? You need to go to work. Right? Now it might be a different line of work. <laughs> you might move up. You might go somewhere else. But to say, I'm retiring. I'm 35, but I'm retiring now. I'm going to buy a boat, and I'm going to do that. What you're going to do is destroy yourself. Because whether, you're, whether you need to work or not, in terms of material provision, you were made for work. 
Rich, uh, those, those who are aristocratic and rich should be as diligent and hardworking as anybody else because this is what we are made for. This is what we're called to do. God happens to provide for our needs through work, but once your needs are met, you, sh you should continue to pursue that which God made you to do. And so, um, and it's one of the things that you should uh, think about is um, don't, don't get too pious. Don't get too um, hoity-toity about the resurrection. We are still going to be men and women. We're still going to be flesh and bone. We're still going to be material. It's going to be glorious, and, but it's, it's not going to be airy-fairy stuff. Stop, think, stop thinking that heaven means standing on clouds. It's not, we, don't, we don't learn our theology about the resurrection from far side cartoons. Um, well, all the people in heaven that I've seen in the cartoons are standing on a cloud. You know? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Um, and you are going to be recognizably you in the resurrection. You're going to be recognizably you. And that's not just referring to facial features. That's referring to gifts, orientation. Musicians will be musicians in the resurrection, right? Musicians will be musicians. Now you might say, will lawyers be lawyers? <laughs> well, and I, I, Don, I mean, I, I've told people before, I write. I write for the same reason that dogs bark. I just do, you know, don't ask me to explain it. I just do. And autonomy, I might get to write in heaven. I will get to write. Now, I don't know if anybody will have to read in heaven, <laughs> right? Because then it might not be heaven for them. But maybe God's got a big library where he just catalogs it and says, that's eh, very nice. Go, you know, <laughs> go do another one. <laughs> well, the point is that we are created for work. We're to work diligently six days out of seven. We're to render all our work as done unto Christ and not just to the boss when he's present. Colossians 3.23, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So your work is an offering to God. And it's an offering to God knowing that it's an offering to God in the person you're giving it to. So if you're cutting corners, if you're doing a slipshod job, if you're ripping someone off, that's not consistent with, and this is Jesus that I'm doing this to. Are we to receive all the work done for us as a gift from Jesus himself? Matthew 6, 11. The mother gives milk to the child, but who fills her breasts with milk in the first place? When the farmer first planted the wheat, he did not know that he was making milk for the baby. But that's what he was doing. Now, let's consider for a few minutes what vocation does not mean, what it does not include. All work is full of glory. And remember that glory is, um, oh, I forget what, um, it was in the introduction it was said, we have, we have a passel of grandchildren, we have 13 grandchildren. And I think this had to do with um, some aspect of the grandkids, and my wife was, pitching in to help with some, there was some controlled chaos situation, you know, there was some, and my wife was throwing herself into helping with that, and it had to do with some of the w ways that God's blessing my kids, and, and, I, and I remember Nate said to his mom, well, mom, baskets of fruit are heavy. Baskets of fruit are heavy. One of the words that is related to the word glory is weight. All right, weight, glory is a weighty thing. Work is a weighty thing. And one of the things that God does, I, I think he gives us tribulation in preparation for glory because tribulation is a set of training weights. Work is a set of training weights in preparation for still more glorious work because baskets of fruit are heavy. So all work is full, full of glory, but it's a glory that's apprehended by faith, and you look at the weight of the work that you have to do, and oftentimes it is, you know, you're having a day, right? This faith does not necessarily mean 
that a Christian carpenter pounds nails differently than an unregenerate carpenter. It's not like craft competence automatically changes based on whether the craftsman is a Christian or not. It's not like the Christian has to, you know, hammer the pointy end with the flat end down. Well, the Bible calls us to be a separated people. The Bible calls us to be a peculiar people. Well, it doesn't mean that we necessarily pound nails differently, but it does mean that he should understand the meaning of what he does. And over time, this will result in differences in craft competence. Okay, this will result in differences in craft competence. I've said this before, and I, I, I won't develop it uh, at large, but just step back and look at the world in 500-year increments. Look at the get-out-of-map of the world sometime, and look at those places in the world that have been controlled by paganism up till the last hundred years or so, dominated by paganism. Then look at those countries, those portions of the world that are dominated by Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, and then look at those nations that have been dominated since the Reformation by the Reformed faith or the Protestant faith. Okay. You are looking at the first world, second world, and third world, respectively. Right? What nations have a Protestant heritage? England, Scotland, Germany, United States, Canada, South Africa, Australia. Right? What, what nations have a Roman Catholic heritage? Italy, Italy, Spain. You know, you just draw it out. All right. And this is what I mean by craft competence. There is, there, ideas have consequences. Theological ideas have consequences. The way we worship God has consequences. And one of the consequences is craft competence. Right? The, there's, a, there's a reason why, in the third world, there's a reason why buildings fall down in earthquakes. There's a reason for that. And some of the reason has to do with how much money they have, how many resources they have, but a lot of the reason has to do with fraud and corruption. Right? Why, do the buildings, why do the buildings fall down in an earthquake? Well, there's a craft competence difference between those who are, have a cultural heritage of serving and honoring God in every vocational pursuit. Now, neither should this doctrine be taken as an excuse to become a one-trick pony. Your vocation is varied and extends into every aspect of your life. This means that you're not only called to be, say, a software designer, but you are also called to be a son, a student, a husband, a brother, a citizen, a churchman, and a putter of model ships into bottles. You are, you are called to a life, not just to a job. Your, your job is part of your vocation, but your vocation extends beyond where you draw your paycheck. And it's, and it's important to recognize that. So this is what distinguishes a Protestant work ethic from being a workaholic. If you're a workaholic, you're a work idolater. If you're a workaholic, you say, forget my wife, forget my kids, forget my uh, obligations to the church, forget all that stuff. I'm going to be at the office. I'm going to be at the office 80 hours a week, and I'm just going to pour myself into that. That's not the Protestant work ethic. That is idolatry. Incidentally, parents, this means that education should be equipping your child for his or her vocation in this broad sense, not the narrow sense. Right? The broad sense, you're preparing someone for, to be a student, a, a, a son, a daughter, a wife, a mother, a citizen, a church member. You're preparing them for all of that, not just to get a job. Right? Um, educators, are, educators who think about it are continually frustrated by this bottom-line pragmatism that Americans have. How will this education help my child get a job? And because I want them to, I want to shuttle them off to the factory as soon as possible and have them stand by a conveyor belt, a conveyor belt and be paid a lot of money. Well, this, this, um, there are a lot of qualifications I have to make here, but this is a, an issue that goes back as far as Aristotle. Aristotle said, and I think in this respect he was right, um, but it has to be qualified by what I've just been saying about all honorable vocations. 
Um, he said that vocational education, vocational training, is for slaves. A liberal, a liberal education is for free men. Because you know, a liberal education, you're, uh, and because we've been so caught up in the vocational votech paradigm, we've been so caught, caught up in it, we think that a school um, like Logos School in Moscow or the Oaks, or we think like a classical Christian school, is vocational training for English teachers. <laughs> but, it's, but it's not vocational training for English teachers. It is training for life. You want a Christian worldview. You want to educate, educate kids to think about and interact with everything that comes their way in the light of God's revelation in Christ. That's what a liberal arts education does. And then one of the things, once, and once, they've done, once they're done with that, of course, they're they will have to become a cobbler or a candlestick maker. Or they're, going to have to be, they're going to have to become something in the world. And when they do, at that point, they enter into the Protestant doctrine of vocation and not Aristotle's rejection of menial labor as, as beneath, uh, beneath us because we see it as exalting. We see it as a glorif glory, uh, glorious thing. Also, vocation is not a talisman against worldly difficulties. Americans love three steps to automatic success. I made $5 million in two years in real estate. Send me $20 and I'll show you how. Well, I bet you $10 he didn't make it in real estate. <laughs> he made it in taking out ads like that and getting saps to send in their money. Well, uh, we want automatic, just boom, one, two, three. This is the way, this is the way you do it. But that's not what the scriptures promise. Diligence in this way of thinking, diligence in this vocational orientation, will generally result in long-term satisfaction with what you do, instead of constant flitting about from job to job that is so common in our day. Now, it's also important um, that I note that if someone's an itinerant worker, that is an honorable vocation. But there's a difference between an itinerant worker, someone who has to travel a circuit because, you know, whatever it is, or has to uh, travel in order to work. There's a difference between that and someone who changes jobs every three weeks because he's bored. Right? Um, it's like that U2 song. I, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. If you're just flitting from job to job and experience to experience and city to city, or you work in a job until your creditors start to catch up with you and then you're down the road, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. But um, general, so generally speaking, an understanding of this is going to lead to long-term stability. That's not automatic, not in every instance, but it's going to be generally the case. But don't think that God-given changes, when God deals changes into your life, let's say you're laid off, you, uh, you may have noticed the economy recently, right? Uh, that is not as though uh, we're living in the land of uh, Goshen in Egypt and everybody else is affected by this and no Christian is ever affected by it. It's not, that's not what's happening. Many people in our churches are being directly affected by this sort of thing. So this is God, a God-given change that's brought into uh, our lives. So it's not a sign that somebody has, somebody has necessarily sinned. You know, Lord, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Or Job's friends said, you must have sinned because of this uh, disaster that's come upon you. Not necessarily. Sometimes, right, if you lose your job because you were driving drunk and wrapped the car around a tree and you didn't have insurance, yes, God is visiting, you know, God's not mocked. A man reaps what he sows, right? That, that does apply in many situations. But it doesn't apply automatically in a ham-handed way. So... Don't assume that you're in sin just because uh, there's, you know, the economy affects you or something like that. And don't think that vocation or, or understanding the doctrine of vocation means that you will just float through your workday like you were an angel or something. Um, the diapers can really stink. The customers can be unreasonably irate. The promised shipments really can be subject to exasperating delays. Rain falls on the just and the unjust, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.45. And Christ is in all of it. 
Right? Christ is in all of it. So when things get to that point, and, and you want to learn to see this, and, and worship will train you to see this. I remember one time, in, uh, I played football in high school, and I remember one time it had been raining, or it was raining, or it had been raining, and the practice field where we were practicing was a mud hole. And I remember the glorious liberation I felt at that moment when I realized it just doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> I'm not going to get any muddier. <laughs> I'm just sort of peaked out. I can just have fun. Um, if you ever had a day at work like that, <laughs> you know, it's not going to get any crazier than this. I'm about peaked out, and then it gets crazier. And, you know, <laughs> and so don't... Don't bank too much. <coughs> excuse me. Don't bank too much on on that. But you have to realize that that um, one of the things that the doctrine of vocation will teach you is how to roll with it. Right? You, you, uh, th there's a point. Right? Now, let's say going back to that muddy football practice, if uh, you know mud everywhere, and the coach says, okay, I'm going to have the guys practice recovering fumbles, and he throws the ball, because people fumble in weather like this, throws the ball on the ground and says, you know, we're going to do a recovery drill. And I say, why? Why? I don't see the point. You know, why? I know how to, how to jump on the ball. And the, um, the coach wants, has a teleological point, right? He's driving towards something. If I refuse to recognize that point, I'm going to start to grumble. This is the thing. When you have a bad day, when everybody, everybody in your town got up this morning, your name is Smith, and said, today, they say all in unison, is a vast conspiracy against Smith. Today, we will drive slowly in front of him. Today, we will, <laughs> today we will give him bad service in restaurants. Today, we will... Have you ever noticed that, uh, that once you're on that, if you've got that pattern going the first hour and a half, it continues? You take it with you? It just it goes, it goes with you. Well, when God does that, training you to count it all joy when you meet various trials, as, as James tells us, roll up your sleeves, or Romans chapter 5, perseverance, is something that God uses to establish character in us, establish hope, and hope does not disappoint. When this, when this is something that we grasp and get, where does he do this? He does it in all those places where things go wrong, right? Where customers don't do what they say, when the invoice is late, when the shipment doesn't show up, when the thing you're making breaks at the worst possible time, and you know, all, all of these things. It says in Ephesians, always and for everything, giving thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Always and for everything, giving thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, we want to remember how to live in the will of God. We want to remember His revealed will for all Christians. And after that, we want to know what are our abilities, what are our opportunities, and what are our desires. Pretend for a moment that this is a blackboard. This is a circle here. What is the will of God for all Christians? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not uh, bear false witness. The, the law of God is, prohibits everything for all Christians that goes contrary to the, to the law of God. So no, no Christian has to pray about whether to become a hitman for the mafia. No Christian has to pray about whether to go into prostitution or not. No Christian has to pray about whether to marry a non-Christian or not. Those are all expressly excluded by the law of God. So everything you do is you're seeking to live in the will of God and find your vocation. Um, if, you are, uh, if you are a young man saying, okay, I'm going to graduate in a year, what am I going to do? You want to find your vocation. Or because of the economy, you've been established in a particular job, but you're thinking you might be forced to switch. You know, how should I, what direction should I jump? What should I do? Um, everything outside the circle is excluded, but what does wisdom dictate inside the circle? What, is, what constitutes a wise choice inside the circle? And those are the three things I have on the outline. What are your abilities? What are your opportunities? And what are your desires? Well,
you say to yourself, it's not against God's law to play in the NBA and make a million dollars a minute. <laughs> I think I'll do that, you know. I think I'll do that. And what's more, I've been shooting hoop in the driveway. I think I have that ability. I got three in a row once. You know, <laughs> this, is the, this is the way 17-year-old boys think. I've got the ability, and I certainly have the desire. Right? <coughs> Do you have the opportunity? Is anybody asking? No. No opportunity. The, these three things, abilities, opportunities, and desires, have to line up. Okay? The, all three have to line up. Are you able to do it? Is someone, to give you, is someone going to give you a shot at doing it? And do you want to do it? And you say, well, my desire, well, Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Or as Augustine put it, love God and do as you please. Now, if you love God, what you please is going to please him. If you delight yourself in the Lord, the desires of your heart will be in line with that. So, if you have the ability to do something, and you have the opportunity to do something, and you have the desire to do something, God doesn't steer a parked car. He turns the wheel as you're going. You trust him. You commit it to him. You make sure he's in the driver's seat. God, I don't want to go anywhere you don't want me to go. I want to stop when you want to, you know, but I'm going to go so you can steer. I'm not going to go so that I can ignore your warnings. I'm going to go so that you can steer. What are your abilities? What are your opportunities? And what are your desires? And you say, well, I, I applied to five grad programs, and I was accepted at three. So I've got opportunities in three grad programs. And I've looked at my test scores and all the people I've talked to. I've, I've got the ability, I think, to be an engineer. I've got the ability, I think, to be um, a computer programmer. And I've, you know, I've applied to these. I've got equal abilities, and I've got equal opportunities. So now what? I'd say, well, what do you want to do? What's your, what are your desires? If the person said, well, I, could, I don't want to do that one, but there's two left, and I think I want to do them equally. And I would say, so flip a coin. And really, you know, <laughs> really? You're the pastor telling me the lot is cast into the lap, it's every decision's from the Lord. But there's two ways the, the lot can go. If it really is, I mean, 50% either way, then flip a coin. It does, it, you know, if everything else lines up, sure, flip a coin. Make the decision that way. But oftentimes, the, flip, the coin flipping will reveal what your actual desire was. <laughs> because you flip a coin, it comes up heads, and then you think, oh, two out of three. <laughs> and that, you just go, just go with the other one, because that reveals what... Um, what you wanted to do. So what are your abilities, what are your opportunities, and what are your desires? If all that lines up, then go for it. A man's heart deviseth his way, and I think this is a wise way to devise your way. Obey the law of God, consider your abilities, get counsel from others, get people to be scrupulously honest with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing opera, and I'm going to sing in Carnegie Hall, and your mom and your aunt and your dad would all say, no, dear, you are not, you know. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, that's not going to go that way. So get good counsel, that sort of thing. But when you do, a man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Proverbs 16, 9. And as you go, remember this. Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. Mean there, meaning contemptible men. He, he will not stand before nobodies. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He's not going to stand before contemptible men. Proverbs 22, 29. I saw a great... Uh, um, you ever been to Les Schwab? How, have you ever seen how they hustle? <laughs> Les Schwab. That's not an accident. I, uh, you know, I, I remember seeing... A, I saw a sign in a manager's office once at Les Schwab and says, everything comes to him who hustles while he waits. The man who hustles while he waits, mysteriously, the ball bounces his direction. Just a magical thing. All right? um, what happens is, I was just reading, it was Thomas Edison or somebody said, uh, some great inventor or scientist said that moments of illumination or moments of 
inspiration or opportunities, they said, are only of use to the prepared mind. Right? If, these moments come, and if you've tilled the soil, if, if you've prepared the mind, then you're ready uh, for that. But oftentimes, things go right by because you, you, um, you, you missed it. You, you weren't preparing yourself. So, you know, for example, if you're sleeping until 10 o'clock every day and watching videos until 2.30 and just wasting time, how much time are you, how much time are you wasting? If someone gets up, um, and I'm not talking about the workaholic who ignores his family, I'm just talking about someone who industriously gets after it, oftentimes there, there are men who, in the course of their lifetime, have a, a whole additional career. It's, it's like they lived 160 years instead of 80 years because of how much time they spent paying attention to what they were doing. Right? So if, if someone is dinking around, uh, you know, just a time uh, uh, punching the clock, watching the clock every minute at work for eight hours, <coughs> eight hours physically, but only gets five hours of uh, work out of the, you know, five hours worth of work out of eight hours, what is going to happen to the person who has that three extra hours at work every day, who's really working? That's three, six the next day, nine the next day, 12 the next day. And it's, it's not long before you have a whole second career of additional productive time. But you're not going to do that if you just think it's busy work. This goes back to the first point. If you just think you're digging holes and filling them up, then why not just watch the clock? Why not just draw your paycheck? But if God is watching, if God has called you to do something, if God has called you to stand before kings because you're really good at it. You know, I've seen, I, I, I love watching how, you know, I'll see a, a magnificent guitar player and I think, isn't it amazing what people get good at? Isn't it amazing what they do? They, how many hours? They, they get good at that. Or someone like Bezalil. What, isn't it amazing what they get good at? And they give themselves to it. Well, that's not idolatry. It's idolatry to refuse to do it unto the Lord. So, this is not carnal ambition. It is what enables us to see death and resurrection in our daily callings. And, of course, a talk on this subject would be grossly deficient if we did not quote Luther at some point. His wonderful grasp of vocation, the most heavenly and earthy of all truths, Vocation is heavenly and earthy at the same time. His grasp of this was remarkable. And he said, God himself milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. God himself milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. Our Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that you'd help us as we meditate on, the, on, these, <coughs> on these things. Please watch over us and bless us and keep us. We pray in Jesus' name and amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was a message from our audio collection titled Spring Cleaning 2, Cleansing Idols from Christian Homes. If you'd like to hear the rest of the talks, you can purchase them at canonpress.com.